It's only one God and it's only one crown. So it's only one king that can stand on this mound. Hello and welcome back to the Vacation Bible School Podcast. My name is Jason Kirk, joined, you're not going to believe it folks, at this time by Emily Kirk. Hello, how are you? Oh, hey, so happy to be here. Thanks for Thank having me. Thank you for me. joining us. It's, it's, <laughs> it's wonderful today. We're here to discuss the book of Numbers, everyone's favorite, the fourth book of the Bible. Uh, as always, we would like this podcast to be welcoming and affirming for all persons, believers, non-believers, and everything in between. Uh, the book of Numbers is, uh, it's it's probably a, a book better for non-believers, to be quite frank, because uh, <laughs> if you're a person who approaches the Bible uh, from the mindset that everything here is supposed to be tremendous moral lessons and, and the, uh, the the vision of God that's being presented in every book and every page of the Bible is consistent Boy, are there wonderful. some stories for you. <laughs> numbers is, uh, there's probably a reason we don't talk about it in Sunday school a whole lot. Um, speaking of, uh, em- Emily, do you have any memories of numbers whatsoever from your youth? No. <laughs> Only in the Bible song. Only li- literally that there was a book called Numbers. Yes. We learned uh, snippets of the basic stories. Uh, there are spies. There's a donkey. Oh, <gasps> intriguing. Yeah. And uh, that, that might have been all we ever talked about in church in Sunday school. Um, but yeah. It's, are there any movies based on numbers? Gosh, I hope not. Um, <laughs> there, there's funny. Shrek. That has a talking donkey. <laughs> It's based on numbers. Um, yeah, okay. Shrek is based Stretch. on Moses. <laughs> it's, it's 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 a swamp. It's 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 swamp. It's not desert. It's wet Moses. It's all it is. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, Fiona was punished by being an ogre. Yeah, Fiona is unfairly punished. So, hmm. Hmm. wonder who that could hmm. relate to. Yeah, ladies being punished because a, a little and there's a little you know a little. But she's happier man. as an ogre. Yeah. She gets to be dirty, and it's cool that way. Yeah. Ladies don't get to be dirty in the book of Numbers. <laughs> Nobody does, uh, except Moses. Um, anyway, it's a great book full of moral lessons, and we will get right to it. Um, so, uh, let's, uh, what's the book of Numbers about? Folks, it is road trip time. We have spent about 47 episodes now uh, in and around Sinai, uh, whether approaching it or gathering around it so people can uh, play Minecraft in the desert or, or debate rules. Standing around Sinai for months and months, and we are finally on the move. Things are happening. Wow. You got the last half of Exodus, all of Leviticus, first 10 chapters of Numbers. Sort of feels like one giant list of rules. So after the first 10 chapters of Numbers, the story actually resumes. I didn't read any of those rules. Were there any good ones? (laughs) So yeah, uh, as always, Emily's the smart one here. Uh, She read the... I read the wiki page. You read the wiki page and you read... And the story of Balaam and the donkey. The one chapter with actual fun action. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it fun, <laughs> but there's action. The one chapter with things happening that aren't murder. I'll tell you that much. Okay. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> Listen, I just do not have the time in the day to read all those Let rules. the record show she has cakes baking right now. So it's 10 p.m. Multitasking anyway. So this There's a lot happening in my day, and I still have about 45 tasks. So, yeah, let's do this. But uh, the, let the word minister to you. Uh, let the wisdom of the book of Numbers guide you through 
through yes, it, your travails. It definitely is. I felt uh, really led by the wiki page. By the donkey. The next FAQ, why is the book of Numbers called Numbers? It's a weird name for a long list of words. Uh, it's because the story starts with a census, counting the numbers of people in each Israelite tribe. And there's this thing where uh, God keeps having Moses and Aaron do head counts. Uh, like, did we? Did anybody fall off the bus? Right? You, know, you go on the school field trip, and do we still have 40 kids? Oh, good. Thank heavens. Uh, whereas here, the number is much bigger because uh, the math is... Uh, Exaggerated. <laughs> the math is optimistic. So in the wiki page, it basically tells us two nu- two numbers. <laughs> so one, it tells us like the number of men above a certain age, mm-hmm. and then it tells us the children. But that's it. It doesn't. I think it was the children. I guess. Yeah, that's them. all the people. Right, but it doesn't tell us any of the women. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, why would they count those? They're counting people. It's really, yeah. There, there's the, a lot of those moments where I'm like, huh? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. The, the men above a certain age thing, what we're counting there is we're counting soldiers because, uh, yeah, the, this group of people where the, you know, the plan was, uh, you know, God's plan was uh, lead the folks to Canaan and he'll send some like annoying bugs and scurry the Canaanites off. Well, the, the, the plan is now army, war stuff. Try and catch up. <laughs> the, the plan is uh, to go murder some Canaanites. I feel like up to this point, there has been a lot of war stuff disguised as other things because it's basically just a lot of like there are murder zones of the Bible. Murder zones. Numbers is a murder zone. Yeah. Yeah. But and there's been that in every book so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every few chapters in the Bible, you're going to bump into a murder. And uh, this, you ask your Sunday school kind teacher depressing. about it. depressing. You know, it's. Uh, and they probably don't know. <laughs> God's ways are not our ways. You know, it's, that's what they'll tell you. But is that. Did you, did you ever ask hard questions as a Sunday school kid? No, okay. I didn't know enough to ask hard questions. Okay, I was I was pretty annoying. And <laughs> God's ways are not our ways. Was that, that was a pop? Idiot. I don't think I ever heard that. No, um, it just means like you know, it's in the Bible. It's hard to understand. Don't try. <laughs> yeah, no, I enjoyed Bible stories and coloring the pictures. Yeah, but um, I didn't. I don't know. Maybe I did, and it's all blocked from my memory now. But Smart. I don't think I did. Um, so the book of Numbers has a better name in the Hebrew Bible, in the, in the Hebrew Hebrew Bible, uh, the name meaning the wilderness, because in the Hebrew Bible, uh, Torah books are named after their opening words. So Genesis has, it, its name means in the beginning. In. Pretty good. <laughs> it's opening multiple words. Uh, this isn't always cooler. Exodus's name in Hebrew is just like the names. And I think Exodus better conveys that. Uh, who wrote the book of Numbers? In legends mode, still Moses, prolific author. Uh, in scholar mode, you know, man, it's similar to Genesis and Exodus, where it's some mix of priests and storytellers, and you can find a zillion theories on exactly who wrote which word. Uh, but as the, the general rule is, if you're reading rules, dates, calendars, lists, nerd stuff, you're reading priests. Uh, Numbers has a lot of priests, but it's nowhere near as rules heavy as Leviticus. P- please uh, don't don't leave, don't press pause now. Uh, don't <laughs> we're, we're not doing don't Leviticus leave part us. two. <laughs> hey, we. We got through that one pretty okay. Leviticus, Leviticus is actually fun, frankly, better than numbers. <laughs> Whatever, we got the story of Balaam to come. So Yeah, man, stay tuned for the donkeys. 
Hi there. Quick break for a few things. Uh, one, the content warning for this episode. It's the book of numbers. Um, everything. Anything that is bad can happen in the book of numbers and probably does. Uh, I want to thank Mike Altman, Jason Smith, and Brad Haggard, smart people who looked over my notes and suggested some things. Um, any and all mistakes that follow are entirely my fault. Please don't ever blame them. Um, as always, I look through the Oxford Annotated New Revised Standard Bible, Robert Alter's translation, the interpreter's commentary, the global Bible commentary, several other things, just trying to assemble a general idea of scholarship that I can try to ruin. That's kind of the idea. Especially on this episode, please remember that the Bible is dozens of books written and or edited across centuries by dozens and dozens of largely unknown authors. No single one of them presented a picture of God that trumps all the others. Sometimes they wrote from oppression. Sometimes the Bible's authors took that fear out on empires. And sometimes they took it out on less powerful people. Also, none of numbers should be used to justify the Old Testament God mean, New Testament God nice myth. That is a Christian fantasy. The Hebrew Bible's God includes the God of Genesis 1, of Hagar, of lots of Psalms, lots of Isaiah, who desires mercy more than sacrifice. The New Testament God includes all the ideas people interpret as evidence in favor of hell. The New Testament God includes Revelation, where God kills more people than the Hebrew Bible's God literally ever could. So yes, the God of Numbers is incredibly unpleasant, and it's possible that means nothing more than the God of Numbers is incredibly unpleasant. All right, let's let's hustle through the first 10 chapters of Numbers. Uh, story starts with God telling Moses to do a census, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Moses is counting by tribe, figuring out the fighting age men, uh, so we can go do war stuff. Judah is the biggest tribe. Remember, in our Technicolor Joseph episode, how Joseph's brother Judah is this redeemed leader type, signaling his tribe will become important. That's two different ways of telling us that the authors considered the tribe of Judah very important. It's as if they wrote this after Judah became the uh, the kingdom huh. in this whole story. Would you look at that? Uh, the Levite tribe is counted separately because, as always, with the Levites being set apart is the theme. Uh, and the Levites like this because this puts them in charge of stuff. Uh, Bible math, again, running rampant. Uh, the massive, massive army that could have conquered any army on earth at the time. Just, you know, let, let the Bible have fun with its math. Uh, chapter 2, incredibly boring. God's laying out exactly how he wants each of these tribes to camp. This is an uh, incredibly youth group. You know, he's it, we want these folks camping here, these folks camping there. Uh, there's going to be a fire in the middle with s'mores, and we will sing Rich Mullins. Uh, and chapter three, very boring. Uh, the Levite census. And it, I'm, oh my gosh, there's so many rules. Levites, Levites, Levites. Chapter four. Uh, it's boring. <laughs> it's about how the tabernacle set up. Uh, Didn't we already do that? Well, you know, Aaron's still in charge of this, which is noteworthy, despite the constant fatal blunders in two straight books so far. Maybe he has amnesia, so... <laughs> God? <laughs> no. Aaron. Um, and God is very sympathetic. I guess. Amnesia. Uh, chapter five and six are... Ooh, we're back to Leviticus. Um, okay, so <laughs> a couple of these are interesting. Um, when a person wrongs someone else, they have to pay restitution plus 20%. Oh, I like that. That's pretty good. If there's no living victim or victim's relative to pay that fine too, that money goes to the priest. 
Oh, hmm. Who hmm. wrote that rule? <laughs> Why it would have been a priest. It was appointed by the Lord. Yeah, the, uh, God God told me that you should pay me because that guy was killed. Uh, Numbers 510, this money just straight up goes to the priest. It's not a storehouse tithe. It's not a missions fund. It's not a building fund. It's the priest's money. Uh, most of Numbers 5 is <clears throat> about what to do when a paranoid husband suspects a wife of cheating on him, even if he has no evidence, no witnesses, just vibes. Um, he takes her to the priest who makes her drink a magic dirt water potion and if she did cheat on him her womb will discharge she'll miscarry become sterile something and she'll be considered a bad person and so forth um if this magic potion reveals she's innocent then she's free to keep making babies for this jealous psycho husband hooray good for her so basically this is like a potion that um harms some women and doesn't others and if it harms you then you're screwed yeah yeah and then yeah if, if, if it damages you then you are also considered a bad person this is like the the salem witch trials yes yeah the same yeah. mindset uh th- so th- th- there's like code of hammurabi influences on this it's barbaric it's gruesome these incel priests making up stuff that they would have liked to do to win like do we, 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 you know this there is no magic dirt water like this wasn't an actual thing that actually proved anything if anyone ever actually did it like we have no way of like we talked about in leviticus uh, most of these rules are just nerds who don't like women writing down how they think the world should go um it makes me feel like women had a much larger role back then and people were jealous yes yeah uh scholars would say you are correct yes i'm uh, very scholarly <laughs> <laughs> read some wilda gaffney read some carol myers and you will see that uh the the real stories of women are kind of obscured by the bible's authors um cool <laughs> So good job. Yeah. See, I didn't need to read anything but the wiki page. <laughs> I still gathered all of this information. Everything the body needs. <laughs> um, chapter six of Numbers is about Israelites who want to go above and beyond to become Nazarites, not Nazarenes. Nazarites are like uh, like monks. They got all sorts of extra rules. Samson, uh, who'll be coming up much later in the Bible, gains superpowers because of his Nazariteness. Um, chapter seven might be the most boring chapter in the entire Bible. <laughs> That's a big claim, wow. I realize, but uh, it lists out exactly which donations each tribe's chief donates to the tabernacle. Wow. Um, Twelve completely identical lists written out one by one and then added up. Uh, the, the story effect is like everyone is being very diligent and attentive. See, they took out all these amazing stories about all these incredible women, and then they had to <laughs> fill it in with this garbage. <laughs> chapter eight is about dedication ceremonies for the levites oh thanks guys you're still giving yourself perks and stuff uh uh, lots of laying on of hands and baptizing and short haircuts and smoked beef which uh, it's kind of how we dedicate preachers today um chapter nine aaron has a question for god if somebody's unclean because they just buried a body how are they supposed to observe a passover (laughs) what did aaron do (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is a relevant question aaron (laughs) guy constantly surrounded by corpses he's created what did he do this time oh no Aaron, why do you need to know this? Do I want to know? God replies, uh, unclean people should simply wait a month and do Passover later. So now there's an overflow Passover for undertakers. 
Chapter 10, God explains how the Israelites should use trumpets to communicate before and during war. Explicitly, war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, which is a bizarre way to describe the mission to go colonize land from people who are already there. Anyway, uh, finally moving as God commands a parade of nations to leave Sinai, uh, tribes all in a very specific order, blah, blah, blah. Things are happening. Numbers 1029. We are on the move. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Hey, call back. We love Jethro. Jethro. Mystical Sinai priest, Zipporah's dad, played by Danny Glover, uh, is now named Hobab, son of Reuel, and he's also previously been named Reuel. He is his own dad. Yeah. You thought Genesis had incest. (laughs) So either Jethro now has three different names so far, or this is three different Moses legends overlapping, or Moses never remarried Zipporah and instead has a second wife with a different father-in-law. Anyway, uh, some people have decided Jethro has as many as seven different names throughout the Bible. Like Gandalf. Let's go with this. Uh, Jethro knew some weird stuff about God, might have kind of led Moses to the burning bush, felt vibes in the universe. I'm down with this guy having all sorts of identities and flowing into each other. And Movies so forth. do this from books. They just combine them into sure. like multiple characters into one. So that's fine. Yeah, we're doing the opposite. This here. is, yeah. Uh, Moses asks uh, Jethro and whoever else Jethro is uh, to be the Israelites' guide through this foreign land because Midianites are helping Moses yet again, even though he divorced one of them. Moses loves Midianites, owes them a lot. He'll probably be really nice to them. Yeah. For the that, entire I, I could see that course happening. of this book because, you know, they saved his life that time. Yeah, they did do that. I'm sure that counts for a lot with Moses, a really good person. Gave him the life he currently has as well. Yeah, they led him to God, saved him from that God. Uh, One of them married him. Yeah. One of them uh, is still his his father figure. Uh, Numbers 1035, the Ark of the Covenant, the very special filing cabinet that contains the notarized copy of the Ten Commandments, is now very explicitly a good fortune war totem mascot. Huh. This box that says thou shalt not kill is instantly a weapon. Uh, Let your enemies be scattered, Moses says every time the ark's on the move. Hmm. Hmm. What what would today's symbol of that be? A cross. Yeah. I mean... (laughs) When Constantine saw a cross in the sky telling him it was cool to go kill people or uh, when they wave Christian flags at the Capitol while storming it or... Yeah. Everything in the name of Jesus. A friend of the program, Mike Altman, points out, uh, we keep coming back to this tension between the ways the Israelites are portrayed by the authors as different from everyone around them, and then the ways they are exactly like everyone around them. Uh, Mike writes, we don't have idols, we're monotheists. But wait, we have a magic box that isn't exactly an idol, but totally functions like one. Uh, Also, we are the freed slaves, but also we are a massive colonizing army. So, yeah, the... uh I think in some ways we are supposed to detect this conflict, this tension, this irony. Um, Because remember, multiple authors here. Not all of them are incel priests fantasizing about uh, women not being able to do anything. There are skilled, competent, capable literary storytellers in here who might be showing us some things that they are trusting us to piece together. Chapter 11, the Israelites have made it like 10 feet into the journey before they're all wailing at God, sick of eating manna, uh, the magical space cake that rains down on them in the desert. Uh, They miss the meat and cucumbers and onions and garlic of Egypt. And God is uh, very sympathetic and uh, says, you know, it's, yeah, I get it. People need to eat. No, God burns up part of camp. Just a few murders. It's okay. Here we go again. God... (laughs) 
<laughs> so God's really mad about people having bodies that need food. Whose idea was that? Moses says to God, uh, why am I responsible for these people? I'm not their mother. I can't give 2.5 million people meat, even though there aren't that many people here, but it sure sounds like it because that's how much they whine. If this is how my life's going to be, just kill me now. <laughs> or the difference between that 600,000 men above a certain age, there's way more women and that's why the Bible's so hard on women too because they... Because they're eating all the manna. They far outnumber the men and, and the are women scared. are not cooking enough for the men. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, uh, Moses, you know, Moses is, is sad about uh, being in charge of this mess. So God does the smart-ass Hank Hill thing and says, Okay, Moses, I'm going to give them so much meat, they're going to puke meat out of their nostrils and <laughs> never want to eat meat ever again. Mommy and Daddy are fighting, and God hits the Israelites with a plague of dead quails. There are so many plagues. <laughs> Every family gathers up hundreds of pounds of dead bird meat from the desert, and God's still so pissed about these whiny people needing to eat food while walking across the desert. He gives them another plague. And it sounds like the plague killed everyone who wanted to eat something besides space cake every day. Hey, kids, let's gather around for some happy Bible stories with good moral lessons. What do you, I mean, maybe they died because they ate these plagued birds. (laughs) I mean, what killed the birds? It says meat crap is coming out of their noses. There's also, so there is a actual uh, phenomenon kind of thing where like quails get blown from the Mediterranean across the desert. This actually happens. You can actually have a plague of dead quails just scattered there. So wow. uh, the Bible is completely real. Every word is, uh, is just proved it. Checkmate, atheists. Uh, somewhere around here is a good time to remember something. God made people in God's image and or vice versa to one extent or another. So when these writers and or editors of numbers write about a delicate, paranoid, thin-skinned crybaby of a god, they are trying to scare everyone into avoiding upsetting that thing. But what are they also revealing? What is the cost of writing God as a giant, awful toddler? What does that reveal about these men? They're giant, awful toddlers. <laughs> Perhaps it could be the case. Uh, you know, at, at no point do the authors weigh in to say, and God was right to do a terrible, murderous baby thing. To be fair, the authors are just presenting a story. And if, over and over and over, the main character is unsympathetic, maybe we're just watching Breaking Bad, which was also set in the desert and had a lady everyone picked on for no reason. Other thing that happens in chapter 11, uh, Moses is griping about being the only one in charge, so God takes some of Moses' prophet, leader, spirit, and distributes among 70 elders. The second time this sort of thing had happened, but uh, two other random guys, Eldad and Medad, also catch the Holy Ghost to start prophesying. The, like, God just scatters around so much spirit power that Eldad and Medad uh, just catch a stray, and they got it too. Uh, and Joshua's freaking out. Moses, we, we gotta stop these guys. They're, they're not supposed to be prophets, and Moses is like, are you kidding? me the more the merrier the less work i have to do moses is very tired Moses is so tired this man is he's many many decades old at this point in the story he didn't know that that staff and that first plague was going to turn into all of this lead to all this that's not really a huge uh portion of chapter 11 but i bring it up because of the way it connects to chapter 12 chapter 11 uh you know everyone is very happy that there are 70 there were supposed to be 70 men with profit power and they're actually 72 that's great that's good that's awesome spread it around everyone do it chapter 12 sister miriam and brother aaron are punished for asking why only moses has the special power 
Miriam did the talking, but Aaron was by her side. That is how the, uh, if you read the, the verse closely, that is what most scholars conclude. God is immediately furious. Clearly did far Aaron away. have leprosy? Yeah, the, the punishment is Miriam catches leprosy. Um, and why did that happen? Well, here comes the best verse in the entire Torah, Numbers 12, 3. Quote, Moses was the most humble man on earth. Remember, the story is that Moses wrote the Torah, including numbers, meaning Moses just described Moses as the most humble man on earth. Now that's humble. Wow. So when someone comes along and disputes a man who is that humble, that person must uh, suffer, suffer. suffer a debilitating disease and have her hands falling I'm, off. I'm just wondering like how what it would have taken to be the most humble man on earth at that point. <laughs> but I don't think it would be the person complaining that he has too much to do. Probably just do it without complaint and say, I know it's, I've got this. A uh, humbleness competition. I mean, you wouldn't even be in the competition. I mean, that's the thing. Who is least in the competition? I know the word humility. Miriam. Read the original Greek, please. But it doesn't say woman or person. It says humble man on earth. Yeah, because women are people. Right. So so why is Miriam mad? She's mad because, all right, here we go. Uh, Every few chapters, there's a verse where everyone just sort of throws their hands up up at it and everyone either says, I don't know, or they have a very competent interpretation. Miriam was mad at Moses because either he married out Outside the Israelites to begin with, or twice, uh, or mad because he divorced Zipporah, or is mad because he remarried Zipporah, or it's something to do with Moses' marriage. Miriam refers to this new wife only as a Cushite, which either could or couldn't be a Midianite like Zipporah. So God goes berserk in defense of Moses. Uh, What's new? <laughs> God roars at Miriam uh, about how much God likes and trusts Moses, greatest prophet ever. Uh, Miriam gets struck with leprosy. Aaron seemingly doesn't. Uh, Moses and Aaron plead with God for their sister to be forgiven and healed. But God's so mad, God says she'll have leprosy for a week. Uh, The Israelites don't go any further until Miriam is healed. And you can read it as Wilda Gaffney does, that they actively refused to go on until their prophet Miriam was restored. Huh? That's good. Yeah. That's it. And it also could be that Aaron also received the the leprosy, but they don't talk about it because that would be putting a man down in the Bible. Because we don't talk about Aaron, our special special boy. (laughs) Right. So. Uh, Miriam. The hero of the Nile, the prophet of the Red Sea, is now silent for the rest of the story. But Aaron, who gets people killed all the time, is still number two in charge. Way to go, Aaron. Whichever man wrote and or edited this story once again wanted to preserve Aaron despite his constant blunders. Placing all the blame on the first hero of Exodus. Bible's like that sometimes. Uh, Numbers 13. We've apparently walked all the way across Sinai to the edge of Canaan, a little bit south of the Dead Sea. Moses, hey, here's a famous story. Moses recruits 12 spies and tells them to go scout the land. But first, we learn he changes the name of one of them to Joshua. This is the same Joshua who was Moses' assistant in Exodus and who was bringing him intel two chapters ago. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, whatever. It's written as if Moses has just now learned he'd been calling that guy by the wrong name this whole time. <laughs> and he's like, oh, uh, fine, you're, you're my Joshua now. <laughs> and the guy's like, Ten Hut, yes, sir. Well, to be fair, there are so many people that Moses has to keep track of. <laughs> There are 2.5 million people. You're all Joshua. <laughs> Stop talking to me, please. Uh, Ten of these spies come back and say, the people who live in this land are really strong. But Caleb, all-time youth group name, uh, the tribe of Judah's spy, says, whatever, we can take them. All of all of the spies agree on this. People already live in this land. None of the spies say, this land is unoccupied and therefore free to us for us to take. All the spies say, we'd have to steal this land from the people who live on it. I the, mean, that's why they're spies, right? Because... They're not scouts. They're right. spies. Yeah. Right. 
the ten wary spies are freaking out, saying they saw five enemy tribes and Nephilim. The Nephilim, the Nephilim are, are back. back. Your favorite. The demon-human hybrids from Genesis, supposedly wiped out by the flood. No, they're back. They're still here. They're very tall. Can't drown them. Everyone freaks out. We should have just died in Egypt. They got Nephilim. Moses and Aaron freak out too, falling on their faces. Uh, <laughs> they're allowed to freak out. Miriam isn't. But Spy Caleb, <laughs> we laughing at all the falling on faces. <laughs> it just, it happens a lot. <laughs> Everyone in the Bible is so dramatic. <laughs> like, like they'll say like one sentence their entire lives, but like tear their hair out at the slightest yeah. provocation. <laughs> There's just so much falling on faces. They're either very clumsy or just really like <gasps> distraught over everything that happens there are a lot of feelings back then um these days with our we bury our faces in our cell phones and this is like nothing has happened yet they've heard about nephilim right but like it's not like they're fighting nephilim sure they're not playing dead (laughs) right there's not like anything happening yet and they're falling on their faces at the thought of the nephilim it's I just mean, kind of funny. I'd go prone if I saw Nephilim. <laughs> uh, so Spy Caleb and Spy Joshua, whose name became Joshua like a page ago, insist, no way, we got this. God wants us to take all their stuff. Uh, and, and they say, this is the land of milk and honey. This is where the famous expression, land of milk and honey, comes from. Uh, honey refers likely to some sort of like date syrup. Um, basically, there's ranch land and farmland up there, described as mythologically as possible. God shows up weary and angry at all the whiners who are scared of declaring <laughs> war against five nations at once. Oh no, God tells Moses, I'm just going to kill all of these people and make a new name. You're the new Abraham. God keeps he, telling Moses right, this. Right. He does this over and over. You made, you made promises to Abraham, big guy. Uh, Moses talks God off the ledge yet again, but God says, fine, fine. None of these whiners get to enter Canaan. They all saw me on Sinai, but they still don't trust. Caleb and Joshua, I like them. They're brave. They're they're very strong, tough guys. They get to do it. Everyone else is going to go wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until this cowardly generation dies out. If 40, as always in the Bible, just Mm -hmm. means until I forget about it, you know, until I get over it. 40 40 days. Yeah, 40 just means like a while. Uh, God wants the cowardly generation to die out. Youth pastors then spend the next 3,000 years telling each new group of teenagers that they are the chosen generation. It's going to lead America to the promised land. America? Unlike the cowardly generation before Hmm. it. Yeah, that's what it's about, numbers. (laughs) But youth pastors are obsessed with generations at this generation. That's true. of this generation. It's true. Parents are too. Oh, hi. Welcome back to the Vacation Bible School podcast. Uh, The old laptop kind of exploded. Um, Pardon the interruption. There's like holograms and whatever dancing across the screen uh, so now we, I, uh, I have a MacBook Air it's uh, very powerful and it would be very satisfying to throw it uh, where were we uh, it is kind of funny that they bothered to send 12 spies if they were only going to listen to ones that told them what they already wanted to hear right <laughs> I mean that's kind of life anyway that's just good military reconnaissance right there why did they need 12 spies? That seems like a dead giveaway that there are spies if there are 12 of them. Just a band of 12 guys roaming the countryside. Do, 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 don't mind us. Yeah. Just observing your troop movements and so forth. Nothing to see here, folks. Ten cowardly spies all die, and the Israelites wake up the next day like, okay, sorry, God, we'll go invade Canaan now. And they get in this weird skirmish, and it's like, no, you you, you weren't paying attention. He, he really meant it yesterday, um, Moses and his best friend God when it was decided that you have to go wander around the wilderness for 40 years. A little too late now. A little too late. But why, if if it was so important that they all go to Canaan anyway, why is it now like, no, you don't get to? That's basically it. (laughs) 
So weird. Like, what was the big rush anyway, then? Uh, chapter 16. There is discord, infighting, insurrections. Everything is falling apart. 250 men confront Moses, led by Moses' cousin Korah, uh, challenging Moses' authority, accusing him of profiting off all this. No, that's the Levite priests who do that. And uh, specifically, these guys are mad because they're Levites who aren't allowed to do priest stuff. There was a whole breakdown of exactly which clusters of Levites get to carry which tabernacle stuff, and these guys don't get to carry stuff that's very cool this is like when your kid comes home from school or wherever they've been and they've been good all day and now they're taking it out on you because you're the person they're comfortable with so that's what they're doing to moses they're taking away out their frustrations on him because they don't get to be levite priests that make all the money i mean i don't see why not moses is in charge yeah there's no one else to yell at except for the people that keep constantly deputizing to be assistants who then kind of disappear like they've done this numerous times no matter matter how many systems of delegation Moses installs, they all just keep coming to complain to Moses. Here they are. Uh, they, they had this whole mission to go take this land, and uh, b- because of some uh, concerning intel, they are not going to do that, and God threw a tantrum, and uh, the mission has kind of failed, because does, now they're going to go wander around in the wilderness. Does it state why they need to go into Canaan in the first place? Because that's where God wanted to put them. Right, but God doesn't explain why he wants them in Canaan. Because that's what he promised Abraham. Okay. And now he's going back on other promises. Well, it's a delayed promise. He tries to, anyway. Because you see, sometimes when the Lord closes the door, he opens the window. <laughs> so, uh, Korah and his gang, they confront Moses. Um... And uh, they do a wizard battle. God causes an earthquake that eats the households of these rebels, women and children too. God eats children because their dads didn't like Moses. So the enduring lesson of numbers is to never, ever, ever challenge the man who says most loudly that God put him in charge of stuff or you will die. Uh, People complain to God about those guys dying, so God freaks out again and starts a murder plague. Yet another plague. Yeah, yeah, we're on plague uh, two, three, whichever. Moses and Aaron do a sacrifice that limits it's the damage. Uh, in Numbers 16, God kills 15,000 people because they thought Moses was leading a failed mission. Moses was leading a failed mission. I'm just not allowed to say that. They are literally barred from completing their objective. Millions of people are about to die in the desert. This is an incredibly failed mission. Got him out of Egypt. That's awesome. But from everything since then, complaining about Moses, completely fair, undeserving of an earthquake or a plague. I would say the uprising made some points. It's pretty strange with um, Moses's outcome in the end, how dedicated God was to him in certain parts of the story. Uh, chapter 20. Moses' sister Miriam dies. Buried in the middle of nowhere, barely more than a footnote. Her death doesn't even get a whole verse to itself, but wait. Is it, did she die of the leprosy? Because it it wasn't like a week later, though. It doesn't specify. So here's the thing. Miriam's death is just sort of like a blah, blah, blah. Miriam's dead. But... Remember, Miriam, the river girl who followed mythic water boy Moses into the Pharaoh's house, and Miriam, the prophetess who sang the song of the sea while leading women across the Red Sea. Miriam, who helped deliver possibly the most ancient part of the Bible, the aquatic creation story, older than Genesis 1. All throughout, Miriam has been associated with water. So now what happens one sentence after our dude authors are finally rid of that girl-sister prophet? Numbers 22. There was no water 
prayer for the congregation. Lots of Flynn scholars have suggested a connection between Miriam's death and everyone suddenly dehydrating. There are ancient Jewish traditions along the lines of wherever Aaron goes, God happens to be there in a cloud of fire and smoke. So maybe Miriam had water gifts. Maybe she was the uh, the only thing keeping these people from parching themselves. Was there a version of the story, now forgotten, where water prophetess Miriam was more important than we realize and did some Aaron fan cut all that stuff out either to boost Aaron or boost Moses or doesn't like girls or doesn't like water. Who knows? I think it's just another way to get rid of Miriam. Yeah, but finally they're through with her. Yay, Miriam's other guys can have their fun. It's so sad. She's like one of the only one who doesn't have these obvious glaring character faults too. Like everything she did was for the greater good. As far as we can tell. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so everyone's thirsty. God doesn't spaz out and murder anyone this time. Huh? huh? Oh, good job, God. Growth by the big guy. Yeah. Uh, God just tells Moses and Aaron to command a rock to produce water. Okay. This will be easy, right? Moses says, listen, you bitter rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? The various translations, they all have some version of that. Uh, Moses hits the rock twice with his magic staff. Something about this. Either Moses saying, shall we bring water for you? Or hitting the rock twice instead of once. Or... I don't know, something else was a massive, massive sin. God, who has always sided with Moses, changed opinions to agree with Moses, wanted to scrap the entire plan and make Moses the new Abraham, trusted Moses with seeing God's pure form and hearing God's true name, suddenly tells Moses, because you didn't trust me, you're not going into Canaan either. Nobody really knows exactly what Moses did that was so wrong, but scholars have argued about it for thousands of years. There's no real reaction from Moses. Uh, Could have been really upset. Could have been kind of relieved to not have to be a king in Canaan, um, probably might have just assumed, oh, God will get over it. I change God's mind all the time anyway. Um, and, the, you know, this this comes up again in Deuteronomy, and uh, there's not exactly a, uh, a footnote in the Bible that explains exactly what God's so mad about. This just happens sometimes. And you know what else? There's no Zipporah to cut off anyone's dick parts, because that worked the first time oh, God was mad at Moses, but... I mean, I'm glad there's no more of that. It, well, it would have been, it would have been uh, clutch for Moses. I mean, it had already happened, so they couldn't do it again. It's all out of foreskins at this point. Uh, Something about God's water rock command debacle also gets Aaron fired as high priest. What? Aaron, who broke so many commandments at the foot of Mount Sinai, had two idiot sons botch the first tabernacle ceremony and rebelled against Moses eight chapters ago, has finally done something unforgivable-ish. Moses walks Aaron up a mountain, takes Aaron's priest stuff, gives it to Aaron's son, and Aaron dies on the spot, like Bear Bryant. Doesn't have a job anymore, just drops dead. Uh, So there's quite possibly, buried in Numbers 20, a story where water prophetess Miriam dies, Moses and Aaron try to conjure water, doing so without her for the first time ever. Something about this goes so horribly wrong that Moses is demoted and Aaron is so demoted he dies. So here's what I would like to think of this, is that Miriam was very important to all of this story, and God loved Miriam so much, and all these people, these priests who wrote this, did not like Miriam, and whatever happened with Miriam got them all in trouble, and God turned his back on Moses and Aaron. I think I think there is a more satisfying story if we let that play out. Yeah. Because let us recall, Moses was clearly a prophet of God. But Miriam was the first one that the Bible refers to as a prophet of God. I mean, Miriam got leprosy and all, but Aaron got something, too. We just don't know what it is. And 
I don't know. I, th- I think God- Miriam was pretty important to God, and the priests were jealous. Let's come back to Miriam. Um, so around this time, the Israelites start getting in battles with local tribes because, quote, wandering in the wilderness, where we get the famous expression from, is only a half-truth. As the Tongan theologian Gioni Havia writes... Wilderness is a loaded word, implying manifest destiny to settle all this unclaimed land. And that's wrong. Indigenous people live in that so-called wilderness. The Israelites aren't wandering in desolation. They're traveling through homelands. We start to see the parts of the Bible that were used 2,000 years later to justify stealing from, say, American natives. The Israelites, at this point in the story, colonize the Edomites and the Eridites. But complain again about starving in the desert. We're back to that. Uh, For that crime, God sends poisonous snakes to bite them, and you can actually translate this word for snakes as dragons, if you like. (laughs) Uh, Moses prays to fix it. God says, fine, make a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and whoever looks at it will survive the snake bites. This snake on a rod is something that pops up in lots of old mythology, Sumerian, Egyptian, Greek, Roman. There are one snake versions, two snake versions, the differences are blah, blah, blah. But at this point, most people look at snake on a rod and they see the medical symbol, right? Um, I was always taught this symbol is entirely due to Moses. The, the rod snake that a hospital uses or whatever, that it's, it's all because of Moses. Well, <laughs> he surely popularized it uh, among Westerners, Christians, and so forth. But it does not seem that the Bible's version was the oldest. Numbers 2114, uh, footnote, we have the Bible's first direct reference to a lost book of war poetry, the book of the wars of the Lord. Very Tolkien. There's this whole other book. What happened to it? I don't know. Could have been in the Bible, but it wasn't. But here's a reference to it. It's a reminder that the Bible took either hundreds or thousands of years to be written, and stuff got uh, referenced. There's, there's, you know, the, the, the Bible wasn't written in isolation. They, it, whoever was reading this and writing this, they knew what book they were talking about, but we probably never will. Uh, meanwhile, the Israelites are constantly getting into wars now, I guess because they're bored of wandering. God said, just go walk around in the desert, and they're like, cool. And we're going to practice war for as soon as this whole thing is over. We could do more war. They take all the land from the Amorites, which terrifies the Moabites, who hire a wizard named Balaam. Here we go. This is the fun stuff. Donkey time. <laughs> this is the donkey story. Um, it's it, it, it's written a total mess. All right. We have like two or three t- versions kind of slammed together where uh, character motives are very murky and confusing and kind of contradictory. But uh, the basic version that you could piece together is something like Balaam, who's this like wandering diviner oracle of the gods, uh, is on his way to curse the Israelites because the Moabites have hired him to do so. But God is standing as angels in the road blocking every path of Balaam's donkey. Balaam, the wise oracle, doesn't see this. Balaam starts hitting his donkey trying to get it to move, but God lets the donkey talk. The only time in the entire Bible that an actual animal talks since the Eden serpent was some sort of pre-snake deity, okay? The donkey (laughs) says to Balaam, why do you keep hitting me? I am a good donkey. Carries you around, but you're hitting me. Balaam answers his donkey as if he's used to talking to his donkey. You have no shock there whatsoever. (laughs) And also, he he keeps, he's hitting the donkey like three separate occasions on this little path. The donkey keeps leading him off the path and he keeps going back and hitting the donkey. He's beating the crap out of this donkey. Poor donkey. Yeah. Um, So then, finally, Balaam sees God's angel bodies. God says, you're lucky that donkey saw me because I would have killed you. This is where I don't, I don't understand. (laughs) 
so then there's like oh there's multiple uh, explanation going on at once it's it's a mess uh god mind controls balaam as a double agent for the israelites and or the opposite uh balaam was in on it the whole time or god is it's it's very confusing (laughs) just kind of got to pick one and go with it either balaam is in on it or god is mind controlling him um the moabites keep paying balaam to curse israel but balaam just keeps sacrificing to israel's god right in front of them as he prophesies about israel conquering everything and uh this goes on for chapters and chapters and he's using lots of terms that a real canaanite prophet probably would uh calling god el and shaddai and like a raging animal this whole story is it's kind of a monotheist satire of the wise pagan oracle who is less perceptive than a donkey like the the story is not about a real talking donkey this story isn't the bible telling you donkeys you can talk this story is folklore this story is saying look at this wise wise pagan polytheist thinks he's so smart thinks he talks to god thinks he perceives the universe better than we do yeah well here's a story about him being dumber than a donkey about him being blind compared to a donkey about him talking to donkey um it's also interesting balaam was some sort of legendary regional character at the time uh archaeologists have found an ancient balaam story written by non-israelites about an oracle of gods including the canaanite all-father el uh, an influence on the character of the hebrew god so the Bible using Balaam, uh, is, it's a reference to somebody else's story, like when Marvel and DC parody each other's characters or whatever. So that's the talking donkey story. Yeah, I still don't get it. Yeah, I just, I feel like it it's one of the only stories in numbers that we really get. And you're left unsatisfied. So those, when it says the angels were standing in the road, there's a lot of ways to read angels. We can we can read like you know uh, feather winged guys with uh, the, the halos, right? Or we could uh, look at the memes that say biblically accurate angels have a bunch of eyeballs. Well, that's true if you're reading the book of Ezekiel. But there's a lot of angels in the Bible. People who make memes. Um, there are there are angels in the Bible that are just people with wings. Um, here, angels of the Lord. I think it's very much meant to represent uh, physical manifestations of God. It reads very similar to the quote-unquote guys who are walking around with Abraham um, before Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. It, it reads very much as earthly, physical manifestations of God. We see God appearing as a body uh, elsewhere in Abraham's story, um, appearing as a body in uh, in Exodus around Sinai. So these angels that Balaam's donkey are seeing, I read this as, this is God. Um, Which no, he hasn't done in a while. It's been a while. We haven't seen the big guy in a while. And he hasn't done it for very many people either. So it's interesting that this is where he chooses to do it. A donkey on a total side quest. Thing. Right. He could have just let Balaam go on his way. It does. You know what I mean? Like this entire thing was just hijacking some prayers that in whatever that were going to go somewhere else and uh, and just embarrassing these guys and getting them to waste money and stuff like total side quest here. Um, numbers 2222. This figure, this angel blocking the road, this manifestation of God, this figure is referred to as a Satan. 
This is the first mention of Satan in the Bible. Not the snake in Eden. That was a serpent. serpent. Uh, and, you know, if you want it to be, you can say the serpent was Lucifer and Satan and Beelzebub and all that stuff. But refer back to our creation episode. <laughs> uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years, Satan didn't mean horned red guy with fiery pitchfork in charge of a place called hell. It meant adversary. Here, God was Balaam's adversary. So God was Balaam's Satan. God was the Bible's first supernatural Satan period. Again, our idea of Satan as a fallen Lucifer final boss king demon is only a thing if you combine a bunch of villain concepts inspired by stories ranging from the Babylonians to the Romans and is still largely a post-Bible invention. God is the Bible's first Satan. Thank you. Numbers 25. The Israelites begin to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. Abraham and Moses and Joseph and Judah and King David have non-Israelite relations. Yet this reads ominously. The Bible's authors always considered the Moabites huge perverts. That demented story in Genesis 19 about Lot and his daughters producing children, the offspring of that story were the Moabites. Israelites are getting involved in Moabite religious ceremonies. The law has said it's good to welcome foreigners, but not like this. Uh, the law has also said God is extremely paranoid about Israelites becoming non-Israelite. I think that's the the meat of this. Yeah. So God tells Moses to impale all the chiefs of the Israelite tribes and leave them to rot in the sun. Moses goes even further, telling the judges to kill anyone who's worshipped the Moabite God. Explain so why. God and Moses, though, are still working together at this point, even though... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Moses is still the guy. He just, you know, wants to get Can't to, go to Canaan. Yeah, he, he's still in charge of uh, impaling people out here in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we're mad at the Moabites, all right? That, that's the story. We're mad at the Moabites because they are alluring too many Israelites into their um, into their tents and temples and what have you. Somewhere around here, the anger pivots no explanation whatsoever from the Moabites to the Midianites. Uh, the Midianites, of course, the nation that has most helped Israel throughout this process, uh, Moses' family, uh, as Midianites, Moses would probably not be alive if not for the Midianites. And yet we are suddenly, for no uh, clear reason, mad at the Midianites. Well, here's one reason. Uh, it, it, they are the same things are happening with the Midianites that were happening with the Moabites, evidently. There are uh, minglings of the people. Aaron's son crashes a wedding between an Israelite man with a Midianite woman and impales both of them with a spear mid-honeymoon, and the author wants us to know the spear passes through the man's body and into the woman's reproductive organs, because this author is not subtle about metaphors. Never mind Moses' Midianite connections and all that. Uh, it's, it's on against the Midianites because of these mixed marriages. And uh, so God murders 24,000 people by plague, only stopping to praise Aaron's son for lynching those honeymooners. God tells Moses to send an army to slaughter every Midianite man, and they do. God thinks this is pretty cool. Moses goes to survey the captives and orders all the boys killed, many women killed, and very, very strongly implies the soldiers can make sex slaves of the remaining 32,000 foreign virgins, even though this whole war started because Israelites were having too much sex with foreign women. Well, and Moses clearly has forgotten that um, he survived during a time when all the baby boys were being killed. 
Yeah. Moses killed all those people rather than just telling his guys to keep it in their pants. Now let's pause for a 10-hour discussion about how purity culture is taught to young Christian boys and girls that girls are dangerous temptresses who put themselves in situations. Stumbling blocks for helpless boys. That's what Moses thought when he murdered tens of thousands of Midianite women and bred another 30,000 out of history. Moses, who once recorded God saying thou shalt not kill or steal, is now a genocidal, paranoid, hypocritical, sadistic enslaver who kills thousands of baby boys and believes himself to be above the rules. Literally everything he once set out to defeat. Pharaoh Moses, like you just said. Right. Even the Pharaoh only killed boys, not boys and women. Um, Pharaoh, to be fair, loved women. <laughs> you think so? Yeah. Uh, so in this story, at the, in this, you know, in this episode, God's only concern is to make sure the Levi priests get their cut of the spoil. Bible is just nothing but face value moral lessons that are appropriate for children. Obviously. And in the middle of all that, God officially confirms Joshua will take over from Moses once Moses dies. And suddenly I'm looking forward to Moses moving along. <laughs> Uh, the Midianite deity who God's so afraid of in all this is called uh, Baal, a title like Lord, a title shared by a bunch of gods in the area, um, including the ancient Canaanite storm volcano war deity who lives rent-free in the Hebrew god's head. Uh, Will Gaffney has a way of thinking about it. These Midianites would have referred to the Hebrew god as the Baal of Sinai. Uh, and from here on out, the master and commander of the universe is constantly terrified of silent statues named Baal. Numbers 32-36 are mostly very boring, just God laying out logistics for the ground defensive into Canaan. Who will get what land? A reminder to move all the Canaanites from the land uh, plan for total conquest, colonization, and annihilation of people God created. Uh, except for Numbers 35, which spends 17 verses reminding everyone that to kill someone is murder, and the penalty for murdering is death. It's just a really weird place to put that reminder. After um, all of the death that has taken place, especially. The, after all that death and during a plan for more death. Uh, Quick sidebar. Did you ever learn growing up that, Mo- this, that Moses was this guy? We never talked about this. No. 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 And uh, you know, there were lots of awkward questions because, like, you know, we all read our Bibles and stuff. And, like, we would we would pass through Numbers and Joshua specifically and say, like, okay, y- you're telling me this was cool? You know? Yeah. It, you, what you would get is, like, that's th- that was just the way the world worked at the time. You have to think of the context of the time, right? And I feel like, like in 2,000 years, people are going to say that about us. Probably about a lot of things. Yeah. Such as, like, why did you set the planet on fire, for one thing? All, I mean, all sorts of things. Yeah. Um. The, there's a lot of apologies for old Bible stories by saying, oh, that's just how they did things at the time. As if that makes it okay. If your book, if you're saying your book right now in the 2020s is a perfect moral guidelight, shouldn't it have been at the time? But also, they know that that's not how things were because they're telling you the commandment of thou shalt not kill. They know it's wrong. And they're reiterating it. <laughs> right. In the middle of one genocide while heading to another. There's all these verses about, by the way, killing is bad. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, again, I sense that is like someone put that there for a reason. Someone snuck that in there for a reason. It had to have been a woman. <laughs> <laughs> we will give we will give her credit. <laughs> the spirit of Miriam. Yes. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, uh, remember, number says, the penalty for murdering is death. Yep, we're going to exterminate entire nations worth of people, but you better not kill anybody when we're not exterminating, unless they've slept with a Moabite, or slept with a Midianite, or complained about not starving in the desert, or told a demoted leader Moses he's doing a bad job, or said some enemies seem scary, or been a Midianite non-virgin, or an Amorite, or any of the many Canaanite tribes whose days are numbered. Those are the people you can kill, according to the Bible, if you take all of this as face value moral fables for preteens. <laughs> We're having a lot of fun. It's a lot. This episode started really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye to fun. Numbers 35, 33. Quote, blood pollutes the land and there's no way to repair blood-stained land except by the blood of the one who shed it. So who's most responsible for the bloodshed in Numbers? Is it Moses or is it God? Numbers says, whoever's responsible must die for what they did in the book of Numbers. One of those guys will. Uh, anyway, so here's a happier thought. <laughs> Who are the heroes in this story? If the god in Numbers is just some rah-rah war god fantasy, then who are the people of the god we like, all right? We're referring to God in a lot of ways because God's a big idea. The priests who wrote Numbers, they liked a god who, uh, who just smites the people the priests don't like. Is that a God we believe in? Is that a God we aspire to believe in? Remember the thousands of Israelites who stand up against Moses. Most of them are described as whiners by the authors, described as being killed by the war God or Moses for standing up. Look at the life of Moses. Egyptian midwives fought for his family. His mother broke the law to save his life. His sister risked her life to guide him down the Nile. An Egyptian woman took the orphan Moses in. Seven Midianite women took the fugitive Moses in. His wife saved his life from his own God. His sister was counted as a prophet. And in Exodus, there are a couple moments where he channels God's feminine qualities, the body reveal, the Shekinah, their shared parentage of the Israelites. Look how many women it took to make Moses great. And look how much he resents that in Numbers, where he's become a wife-abandoning dad who butchers women, enslaves girls, and hands down law after law after law, making women less than men. There's even a scene toward the end of Numbers where five sisters demand a portion of land. God agrees, and two books later, they're still asking Joshua for it because Moses failed them. Lots of people wrote the character of Moses, and by the end of the story, lady haters are writing the character of Moses. Yeah, that is that is something that I noticed too. It's like just it's it's so nonchalant that the land is only granted to these women because there were no sons, and it's just like, oh, this is why we had to do that. It's not like they earned this land or they deserve it like anyone else. It's because they had no sons. I've referenced Wilda Gaffney several times in this episode, but a um a book of hers, Daughters of Miriam, does a really good job of showing how like we th we you know we assume this part of the world at this time, oh, women didn't you know weren't able to do anything all around the middle. East, women were prophets, you know, women were priests, women had, you know, roles in society. We're not going to say it was perfect feminist equality everywhere, but women were more important than the Bible makes it out to be because the authors of these parts of the Bible are, it's, it's, it's a male fantasy. It's a, it's a whole angry dude, women hating male fantasy. And it, it does make you wonder how much of this is truth or how much of it actually came from Moses and how much of it was implied or forced upon the story. It, yeah. It'd be interesting to actually know the answer to that. Yeah. Because like, say this, say Exodus up to Mount Sinai, say that was the Moses, the original Moses story based on combinations of however many real people, whichever guy, you know, 3000 years ago and, you know, inspired the Moses story. We'll never know. 
But say the Exodus part, say that's the real story, and say the numbers part is some some Punisher fan coming along and uh, and writing a very weird version of Moses. Or say it all happened and say he became the very thing he set out to conquer, right? Like it, it is just hard to imagine someone who came from that very female-influenced life, given everything that he had been through and all the help that he had to becoming this person who just murders women. Yeah. The Midianite thing to me is like, even if you want to tell a Moses downfall story, even if you, you know, for whatever reason, that's too far. It's, it's, that, re- it's just it's, really hard to reconcile all of that yeah, into one person. It's too much. Without there being a, a, a conflict. Yeah, there's no reason for it. Right. It's the worst thing you could possibly do to the last group of people you should be doing it to. Right. <laughs> yeah. And like... And this is almost, it, it's its funny, like, in church growing up, this story was like, well, that's just how war worked at the time. Yeah, war gets glossed over in church. Crazy. It's this kind celebrating. of war. Yeah, this kind of war gets glossed over. All right, so a note in defense of the Israelites, which we'll get a bit more into in our Joshua episode. Uh, quite possibly none of this happened uh, anywhere near as described or at all. Um, there's not exactly a whole lot of archaeological records of the Midianites being eradicated. The ways that people in the ancient world wrote about war, it was often quite inflated. Um, it was often the equivalent of uh, everyone keeping their own score and declaring they'd shut out the enemy and uh, just completely blew them off the map. When, you know, not quite. Like, we've found other nations claiming to have eradicated the Israelites. It, that was uh, that was a lie. The, uh, the, the actual Israelites, the actual nation of uh, the people who produced this religion, did they do these things? I don't see a reason to assume they did. All we know for sure is that someone wrote a story that they did. A uh, very fun random extended universe legend from here. Uh, there's a character, Sarah, uh, Jacob's granddaughter, who's got to be at least 440 years old, yeah. is uh, listed as still being alive among the Israelites. Uh, so, as always, uh, any any character in Bible fanfic, that is, 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 people have ran wild with it. Uh, some Jewish legends have this character as the person who shows Moses where Joseph's mummy is buried in a magic Nile coffin so Moses can fulfill the promise to carry Joseph back to Canaan. And there's, like, uh, trials... And stuff. We love wizard trials <laughs> involving 440-year-olds and mummies and the Technicolor Dream Boys bones. I'd visit that museum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think there's a way to fix the Book of Numbers. I mean, ugh, it's still... The story I read is about Moses's massive downfall. I don't see any way around that. If we read the story at face value, take it as it is. I think the way to fix numbers would be to just move some things around. Move Miriam's leprosy, judgment, and death to the end. So we would have Moses leading a cruel war against the Midianites, blaming them for seducing Israelite men, and then have Miriam speak out on this hypocrisy. But Moses, you were seduced by Midianites. You were told to liberate, not kill. Half of that was kind of Miriam's actual complaint, after all. Miriam was mad about something about Moses' marriage. So it would make a lot more sense if she was saying to Moses, you are married to these people. So then, if we kept that order of events, we would then show God lashing out at Miriam. But a moment later, realizing Miriam is right. And is that the reason Moses was not allowed to enter Canaan? If we just sort of move some events around, have Moses attack the Midianites, have Miriam call out Moses, and then have God saying, Moses, you can't enter Canaan. Same events, different order. 
twisted around a little bit, but now there's at least consequences that are uh, better fitting to the things that actually happened, right? Like like Moses was Moses' biggest punishment was for hitting a rock wrong. Moses' biggest punishment in the book of Numbers wasn't for murdering people. Let's switch those around, all right? Right. <laughs> Let's switch those around a little bit. If we want this book to be a perfect book of moral lessons for preteens, I I, I I think that's the only way to make numbers an actually satisfying story is uh, to say that M- Miriam stood up against all this and she actually convinced God that it was wrong. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Anyway, that's uh, book of numbers. It's fun for a while. <laughs> It all goes to crap. They threw the the talking donkey in just to break up the story a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, just to, uh, hey, kids. Like a little, it's like a short in the middle of an old movie. (laughs) Intermission. Break away. Intermission for everything. It's awful. So, uh, yeah, that's the book of numbers. Do you want to give an A to F grade on this book? Mm. You read the wiki page, and then you heard about other things. I'd give it a D. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Reading this book, Leviticus and this, I really want to go back to Genesis. I miss Genesis very much. <laughs> I was like, oh, they're all going to be this fun. No, no. Exodus was half fun. Exodus had a lot of content. Exodus, yeah, Exodus is like, one of it. nothing's like Genesis. <laughs> I miss you, Genesis. We'll come back to you someday. Uh, and yeah, that is an episode of the Vacation Bible School podcast. Next up, we will have, you sing it, sing it with me, folks. Sing it with me. Go ahead. Press your, <laughs> press your lips to your phones and sing it. Deuteronomy. That's right. Deuteronomy. He sings that a lot. <laughs> Especially before the first episode ever aired, and he was finding the perfect song. Deuteronomy got sang a lot in our. <laughs> If you would have, if you have any interest in supporting this podcast, we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. VBS podcast on each. We are doing a Zoom book club via the Patreon each month, and it is on book. I guarantee every single time it will be on books that are more enjoyable than the Book of Numbers. What book is it this next? That time? much I can promise. As of this recording, up next we have Evangelical Thought Leader with friend of the program Matthew Pierce. The very funny, very short read. Um, and October 2021, Native by Caitlin Curtis. We'll be discussing. If you are hearing this after that, then check the Patreon page for uh, for actual updated info. Um, and yeah, that is the end of this episode. Say la. <laughs>